I wonder what kind of an effect persecution would have on you and on me. Uh, I've said it many times, and you've heard me. If I'm going to war, I want guns, knives, and any other form of weapon that can be used to help protect me and my family and my friends. Um, And adequately defend. Not just defend, but adequately defend. If I could get my hands on a Sherman tank, I think it would be cool to hide one out here. You know, I, I, want, I want weaponry. I like weaponry, right? Um, notice I didn't say a faster vehicle or an airplane to run, a, run away in and fly away in. Um, when persecution comes, and I believe it will, how will you and I respond? But I know in my flesh that I'm not that spiritually strong at times. I've said that. Um, How I want to respond may not necessarily be how I respond. And having said that, I believe that there is something we can all learn about concerning how we'll respond to persecution from this next passage of Scripture in Acts 8. So if you would, turn your Bibles there with me. Acts chapter 8. And we're going to look at the first eight verses this morning in uh, dealing with persecution. And if I could say it this way, the blessing of persecution. Say, how can that be? Well, I believe that we see a picture of that in God's Word this morning. And, um, and as I've said many times, I want to be able to say, in fact, Bill uh, Swan said it this morning as, and as we were sitting around the table out there in our previous class. He said, man, I know how I want to respond in my spirit. I want to be able to say, I'd be that strong Christian that would stand up for what I know is right, for what I believe, but I also know that my flesh is weak. If someone had a gun to my head, how would I respond? Well, I'd like to say, well, I wouldn't budge. Right, because you're just that strong. And uh, you're that emotionally uh, you know, a giant that you can just withstand any type of you know, temptation to give in, right? In my flesh, I, I, I think I would not respond how I want to in my spirit. But how would you and I respond if this were you and I living in this day and age? I want to read the first eight verses, then we'll break it apart here just for a moment. Uh, Verse 1. Now Saul was in a hearty agreement with putting him to death. Now remember, who's he referring to? Just a couple verses before, he's referring to Stephen. And remember, Stephen had just given the whole Sanhedrin council a history lesson that basically marched him right straight to his death. And verse 60, you see, then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. In other words, he died. And then as we come into chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, I think agreement and hearty agreement are two different things. That's just me. That's how I think. You know, There are times they say, well, well Pastor, you want to do this? I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess we will. That's different than saying, yes, we need to jump on this right now and get this done. One of them is like, yeah, okay, yeah, let's do it. The other one's hearty, let's do it. Saul just was not wanting to put him to death. He was in full agreement saying, we've got to get this done, we're going to do it now. He was in hearty agreement of putting him to death. And then it says, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
there was a small remnant that stayed behind. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. By the way, which was illegal in that day and age. Not the lamentation and weeping for someone who had died, but someone who had been publicly put to death. It was illegal to lament that. Because that was almost a slap in the face of those who did it. And verse 3 says, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He was delivering them into prison. Therefore those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the good news of the word. Now Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began preaching Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was being said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was doing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now first of all, I want you to notice the man Saul. He was in full agreement of putting Stephen to death. He was ambitious about it. And remember, in some other passages of Scripture, it says that Saul went out of the way to get special and privileged permission to find those who were part of, quote, the way, so that he might grab them, take them to the officials, that they might be put into prison. I mean, he was zealous about doing what he was doing. I mean, he was one of the up-and-coming young Pharisees who was making a name for himself, so to speak, in that day and age. He was going out of his way to make sure that he could get those who were followers of Jesus Christ, basically to arrest them and get them put into prison and making things difficult for him. For what was he? He was a persecutor. Now think about this. He was a persecutor. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I mean, he wasn't just going about doing his daily task. His daily task was trying to find believers. He was trying to find those who were following Jesus so that he might intently and purposefully destroy them. And not only them, the church at large. He did not want to see it go forward. He was beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism. I mean, he was an up-and-coming ruler, leader, so to speak. Beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being far more zealous for the traditions of my fathers. I mean, here's a guy who was a Pharisee. He was not irreligious. He was one who would have studied the law. He knew the rules and the regulations. But as we now can attest to as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, God doesn't want us to just know the rules. In fact, if we view it as rules, all it is is religion. What God wants of us is a relationship. You see, and I've said it a thousand times, and you'll you'll hear it a thousand more, when we are in a relationship with somebody, it's not a rules. Maybe it ought to be for some of us men, but nobody gave us the rule book on how to take care of our wives and children. Maybe we should have got it, but we didn't. But it's not about rules and regulations. It's about relationships. The more that I love them, the more that I care for them, the more I want to please them and meet their needs. But to Paul at this point, or Saul at this point, it was rules, regulations, it was the law that he had memorized. And he says that he is advancing in Judaism beyond his contemporaries. In other words, those who were around doing the same thing during his day and age. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was zealous to do this. As to the righteousness which is in the law, 
He says that's blameless. Not blameless concerning his sin, but blameless concerning the fact that he knew the ins and the outs and all the parameters involved with following the law. So who was this man? He was a persecutor. What did he do? Well, according to verse 3, it says, But Saul began ravaging the church. Now think about that just for a moment. Um, I think most of us know just by its connotation what the word ravage means. But let me give you, just in case you're not sure what it means, four things. Number one, it literally means to destroy. He set out to destroy the church. It means to ruin it. In other words, he wanted it not to go forward. He wanted it to die. Number three, it means literally to damage. And then number four, to devastate. Now, when you think about this, Paul is looking at those who are following Jesus Christ. Or Saul. He's not Paul yet. So when you think about it, Saul is looking for ways to fall or to harm and to destroy. And remember, we've said many times, the church is not the building, right? We know that. It's not these four walls, it's not the roof, it's not the chairs, it's not this room. The church is who? Us. You and I, who have put our faith and trust in Jesus and we have become followers of Jesus Christ. We are the church. And so what Saul was literally trying to do as he was going about the town was to ruin and to destroy and to ravage those who are following Jesus. Can you imagine just for a moment, and some of you may have heard this, maybe you've never heard it, but can you imagine going about town doing your business and you're not sure whether or not that person is going to go turn against you or not? You see, there was a symbol that we still see today, not as often, albeit, but sometimes you'll see it on on the back of a car, on a bumper sticker, on a back window. It's a picture of a what? Fish. And that fish was a symbol of those who followed Christ. And oftentimes as they would go into the markets and into the villages, they would simply on the countertop, in a form of a, with their finger, form the design of a fish. And if the person responded, they, you know, with a fish, they'd often know that that person was also another follower or a believer in Jesus Christ. And if they didn't, they were careful. Because they didn't know if this person was going to turn on them, whether they were part of the Sanhedrin Council or the Pharisees that would try to throw them in jail and persecute them. But can you imagine having to live your life in secrecy? And being careful? They had to deal with that. You and I don't have to deal with that. In fact, they had boldness, they had confidence, but yet they had fear. Because Paul, or Saul, was trying to destroy them. But you know, this was predicted by Jesus Himself. In John chapter 16, verse 2 says, They will put you out of the synagogues, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that He is what? Offering service to God. I mean, there was actually a mindset that was, I'm taking these people because I follow the law, because I am religious, because I'm part of the Pharisaical group, I'm actually doing God a favor by, by, by persecuting these who do not follow the law like I follow the law. Isn't it amazing that we get, this is just me thinks, but I think oftentimes we're critical of others who are supposed to be like us because they don't do it just like us. Let me give you an example. I like music this way. They like music that way. And because they don't like it how I like it, 
I'm going to get upset with them and kind of not be friends with them. I mean, they raise their hands when they worship. Or they use this translation and I use this translation and everybody knows that my translation is better. Isn't it amazing how we can be critical of other people who we're supposed to be on the same page with? I'm not saying you have to agree with everybody, but I am saying there ought to be a love. This is not love. This is not care and concern. This is not the picture that Jesus came to bring us. For an hour is coming when everyone who kills you who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. In John chapter 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, A slave is not greater than his master, for if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. He says, There's a day coming. Just remember, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. And that's why I say, guess what? Persecution, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Going on here, what happened to him? Or what happened during this time? Well, everything that happened to Stephen would soon happen to Saul. Let me give you a couple examples. Stephen preached in the synagogues, as would Paul. The Jews rejected Stephen's message, as they would Paul's. Stephen was accused of speaking against Moses, the law, and the temple, as was Paul. Stephen was stoned, as was Paul. Stephen died a martyr, as would Paul. See, Saul of Tarsus was probably the last person you would have thought to become a great apostle. If you were to look at Saul's life, who was a persecutor of those who followed Jesus, probably not the person you would think was going to become one of the greatest followers of Jesus. I mean, can you imagine? He wrote half the New Testament. God used him mightily. But I'm telling you, as he was persecuting believers, that thought probably never crossed anyone's mind. Can I just say, you never know what the result of Jesus in someone's life can produce. You never know. But notice what was taking place. Look back at verse 1. Now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Jerusalem, or Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So several things, at least four things were taking place. Number one, great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And you just have to know, we are living in a day when persecution is coming. No question about it. Do you realize over the last several years there's been a huge push to take away the tax-exempt status of churches across America? Do you understand what that would do to a lot of small churches? The average church in America is under 60 people. I realize that there are a couple mega churches, even in our area there are a couple big ones that run 1,000 to 2,000. I get it. But across the United States, the average size church is 60 and below. Can you imagine the church that's got 20 acres of land outside of the town and uh, because somebody in their church history gave them that gift of land to put a church on and all of a sudden have to pay taxes on it when they don't even have an annual income to meet it? That's their point. If I can get to the place where I can take something away from you and cause Christianity to suffer, we're going to do it. 
pushes to take away tax-exempt status. Is there abuse? I'm sure there is somewhere in some churches. I think I've seen it. You've probably seen it. But I don't think it's the whole. Deal with that church. Deal with that leadership. But there is a push to harm the church. There is a push to make more rules and regulations. Our, our, our position on certain things are, are being neglected and rejected. You know that the Constitution says that government shall not infringe, but yet they try? Persecution is coming. Persecution in some places is already here. And we need to stand up for what's right. Uh, great persecution is going to come. Number two, the church began to scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, now, lest you think they were running in fear, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But when the persecution began, as it says in verse 1, to come against Jerusalem, it says they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Just hold on to that thought just for a moment. And then it says the apostles remained behind, and some of them buried Stephen and made lamentation over him. And I said earlier, because Stephen was stoned to death, by the Sanhedrin, people were not allowed to publicly lament his death because that would be a slap in the face of the leadership. Basically saying, well, we killed him in vain, so you're not allowed to do that. They did it anyway. What's that tell us of their boldness and their concern and their love for Stephen? Um, Saul, amidst all of this, was entering house after house Dragging off men and women, delivering them to prison. But here's the beauty and the blessing of the persecution. Look at verse 4. It says, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about, what's that next word? Proclaiming the good news of the word. So, those who had been scattered, number four, went about proclaiming. The good news of the Word. Now think about this. Let me, let me give you three things they didn't do. Number one, they didn't go about complaining that they had to leave Dodge. I'm just telling you. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but we, we had a flood in our house for a while, and I griped and complained about it. I had to go to a motel for a couple of days while we cleaned up the flood. I, I, I'm a creature of habit. Anyone else? I like my comfort. I like my bed, my blankets, my pillow, my room. Anyone else? Fish start to stink about three days out of water. I'm just telling you. I need my aquarium. They did not run and go out and complain. I don't see one verse in here that those that were being scattered went and griped and complained to the apostles because they had to leave Jerusalem. They didn't do it. Number two, they didn't go out searching for weapons to get even with Saul and the other persecutors. I don't know about you, but that's kind of what I would do first. Just being honest. Like I said, I'm not a spiritualist, some of y'all. I'm looking for guns. They didn't go out looking for weaponry so they could get even with those who were persecuting them. And number three, they didn't go out looking for hiding places. I mean... I realize that, and this is a true statement, I'm not just saying this, when Obama got elected to his second term, deep earth bunkers 
sold 400% more bunkers that next year than they had the previous several years. Everybody wants to build a bunker now. I think it would be a cool man cave. But, you know, they didn't go out looking for hiding places. They didn't look for the underground caves. They didn't dig tunnels. They went out, according to verse 4, proclaiming the good news of the Word. How do you go out when you're being forced to leave your home proclaiming the good news? That's not normal. Right? I mean, does anyone else agree with me? The reality is it was difficult. And yet they chose to respond right. They went out and proclaimed the good news of the Word. And notice how God used Philip in verses 4 through 8. We read verse 4, but verse 5. Now Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began preaching Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was being said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was doing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of, out of them shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. I mean, this persecution brought about change. They were able to see the power of God at work. Immediately, Philip went out to Samaria and began preaching Christ to them. Why? In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They began to realize that it was only at the name of Jesus Christ that they were going to have any type of stability, any type of hope, any type of getting through the struggles that they were in. The crowds in one accord were giving attention to what was being preached to them. You remember after 9-11? You remember for just one or two or three Sundays, churches could not fit everybody in the doors. I had friends in New York City that, had pa- that, that are pastoring there. They were running out of rooms in their sanctuaries. It was literally shoulder to shoulder during the difficulty. Three, four weeks later, when things calmed down, guess what? Gone. People tend to respond in the moment. And you can respond one of two ways. You can respond to the message that Jesus saves, or you can respond in anger and frustration and leave and run and hide and retaliate. The crowds here in this situation were giving attention to what was being preached to them according to verse 6. And then the crowd both heard and saw the signs Philip was doing. You see, because Philip didn't go hide, because he didn't go retaliate, because he didn't go gripe and complain, but because he went out and preached the Gospel, many people saw the power of God working in and through that. Do you realize that you have a watching world who has got their eyes on you, seeing how you're responding to life circumstances. What are they seeing? When they see your anger, do they know why it's there? Because you didn't like something that happened? Because somebody said something? Somebody did something? Somebody took something? People watch. That was one of my favorite pastimes, going to the mall, just sitting in the center and just watching people go by. That is a riot, by the way. Watch people. 
But people are watching you. And they're noticing how you respond to things. How easy you fly off the handle. How easy you run your mouth. How easy you rejoice and thank God and pray. They see both sides. The crowd both heard and saw the signs Philip was doing to verse 6. Not only that, also by the end of verse 6, or verse 7, for in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. I, I, I don't know, I've never been in that situation where all of a sudden demons were coming out and there's screaming taking place because demons were fleeing a human. Read the book of Mark sometime. In the first eight chapters, it's almost like in every chapter, Jesus was dealing with unclean spirits and demons. I was blown away how many times Jesus dealt with that. Question. Did they just go away all of a sudden in our world? Or are they still there? I think they're still here around us. I think most of us just don't deal with it. We don't want to deal with it. Let somebody else's... We'll let the Pentecostals have that, that, that realm. Come on, let's be honest. We don't deal with that. We don't want to deal with that. I don't think they've gone anywhere. I just don't think that we're as aware because maybe we're not as close to God as we ought to be. Maybe we don't sense when somebody is dealing with that. And by the way, let me just say it and I'll stand to this because I believe it's scriptural. I don't believe that a person who's truly born again who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can be possessed. They can be oppressed but not possessed. My body is the temple of the Holy Ghost and he's not sharing it with a demon. At any time. So despite what some of you have been taught, it's false. That's scriptural. Oppression comes, but not possession. But they were in a situation where they saw demons coming out and they were screaming with a loud voice because God's hand was on Stephen. In a time when it wasn't convenient to be on him. I don't know about you, but if I'm having to leave my homeland... I'm not worried about what I'm, you know, preaching. I'm trying to find a place to stay, trying to find a job, an income, um, a place that's safe for my family. No, no, no. Stephen went to Samaria preaching. That's what was on his mind. And those who were paralyzed and lame, according to verse 7, were healed. Let me ask this question. What if, just... The hypothetical what if. What if Stephen and others who were persecuted and had to scatter, what if they chose to sit back and simply just gripe and complain, look for weaponry to retaliate, or just go find a hole to hide in? Here's what I think would have happened. The city would not have been evangelized. They wouldn't have seen the power of God at work through difficult circumstances. Maybe some of those people have still been full of unclean spirits. Maybe some of those that were lame and paralyzed would never have been healed. Maybe. Maybe God could have worked through other circumstances and other people at a different time. I don't know. But see, for that moment... 
the persecution brought praise. Look at verse 8. So there was great joy in that city. Because they were obedient, because they did what God had told them to do, God worked miraculously. So let me just give you four thoughts as we close this morning. Number one, there will always be persecutors and there will always be persecution. Do you understand that? There is always going to be a persecutor. There will always be persecution. It's not a matter of if you will face it. It's a matter of when and how. And I believe it's closer now than it's ever been. Say, are you a doom and gloom? No, I'm just realist. I don't think things are going to get easier. Does anyone really think life is going to get easier in the days ahead? Do you think everyone's going to be more gracious to the church of Jesus Christ? Oh, you're a Christian? Oh, wonderful. Let, hey guys, don't, don't, no harm to these guys because they're just good people. What world is that? Oh, you don't believe the government should control you? Guys, double the pressure. That's what I think. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. I'm just a realist. I don't know when. I don't know how. But I believe there will always be persecutors and there will always be persecution. Number two, you have an opportunity as to how you will respond to both. Every one of you sitting in this room has an opportunity to choose how you're going to respond. And we can respond one of two ways. In the flesh or in the spirit. In the flesh taking care of yourself or in the spirit responding to God in obedience. You have an opportunity to choose how you're going to respond. Nobody's going to force you how to respond. They can put a gun to your head, but it's still your choice. They just have different consequences. It's your choice. Number three, how you respond will reveal who or what is important to you. If I respond in the flesh, it says I'm all about taking care of me. If I respond in the Spirit, it's all about following Jesus Christ and living for Him. But how you respond will reveal who or what is important to you. And number four, persecution will either yield weakness or great joy. Weakness in that I'm not as strong as I thought I was. I have to admit, I would love to be able to say, persecution comes, ain't nobody going to make me budge, make me give, make me stumble, make me give in. I would love to be able to say that. But I also know how fleshly I am. I would love to be able to say, I am so full of the Spirit, nobody's going to make me give. But persecution will either yield our weakness or it will reveal joy, as it did in verse 8. There was great joy. Philip allowed God to use him during a difficult circumstance in his life. I'm running from Jerusalem to Samaria. I'm going out preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm going out. I'm going to let God fill me with his power, use me. We're going to see people saved. We're going to see people healed, the, the paralyzed and the lame. They're going to walk again. Demons and unclean spirits are going to be ousted out of, out of people. I'm going to let God use me. Or, I'm going to gripe and complain because my comforts are being disrupted. 
I, I want to do what God wants to do. But I also know my flesh gets in the way. Anybody else struggle with that? I don't know, but I think this passage reveals a lot. It shows us the blessing of persecution. But we can also know what the opposite of it is as well. Missed opportunity. Missed blessing. I want to be able to say I am standing true for God. I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to use me, work in and through me to bring glory to Him. I want to. That's my desire. And the only way I know for that to happen is to daily surrender my will to His. Daily to say, God, You have control of me. My flesh wants to rule things. Maybe you, maybe you, yours does too. I mean, doesn't matter what. Speed limit, hot dogs, because let me say, if one's good, three's better. I'm just saying. It don't matter. Because I can either give in to my flesh and let my flesh rule, or I can give in to the Spirit and say, God, you rule through me. You present your will, your way, and I submit to it. And we all know which one's better. Lord, I ask that you'd work in our hearts this morning and help us to truly be able to say that we are surrendered, that we are committed, that we are willing to give up anything that is fleshly, anything that is serving self to follow you, Lord. Lord, we know that persecution is going to come. We, we don't... Lord, we don't have a death wish. It's not like it's going to be here like this afternoon. But Lord, we know that at some point it's going to come. Things in this world are not getting easier. They're getting more difficult. They're getting more difficult for the church. But Lord, we're not to live in fear and trepidation. We're, we're to live in faith. So Lord, I ask that you'd help us to do that. Lord, help us to respond rightly to the circumstances of life that we don't like, that we would never choose. So that we can know that your Spirit is working in and through us. God, I pray that you would help us to respond in such a way that would not only bring glory to you, but Lord, others around us would see that your hand is at work in our lives. And possibly even that, Lord, would cause them to want what we've got. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to, Lord, just be obedient in our commitment and our surrender to you. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, and we'll be through in just a moment and we'll be dismissed, but say just for a moment, Pastor, God spoke to my heart. There's some things that I need to, to change with the help of the Holy Spirit. I've been living in the flesh, responding in the flesh rather than the Spirit. I say, God's challenged you this morning. He's convicted you this morning. And you say, Pastor, things need to change. Would you pray for me? Yes. In the back, in the front, the sides. In the back, yes. Yes. In the middle over here, yes. All over. Can I just challenge all of us? All of us who've lifted our hands, our hearts to the Lord. All of us who in our minds have acknowledged that, yeah, I'm not as strong as I need to be spiritually.
I've had some responses that I have not been right. Some difficult things that I've not responded right to. Can I challenge all of us who had those thoughts to simply take a minute and say, God, forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my lack of faith. Forgive me of my wrong attitude. Forgive me of my fleshliness. My responses in the flesh. And God, help me to respond in the Spirit. To live in the Spirit. To let the Spirit live through me. To be filled with the Spirit. Just take a moment and pray. Say, God, I need you to work in and through me. all stand to our feet this morning. Lord, I do pray for each and every one who raised their hand, their heart towards you this morning. Lord, we, I think many of us, Lord, if not all of us, we want to be able to respond right to times of difficulty. But Lord, if we're honest with ourselves in our flesh, we fail. God, forgive us. But Lord, even still as we know that persecution will come and persecutors will be around us. May we take a stand for what we know is right, Lord, through the help of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. That we may see your hand at work in our midst. That we may walk in victory. Lord, I can't imagine being ousted from my homeland, being scattered and having to leave, but yet going with a good attitude, proclaiming the good news. God, I pray that when difficult times come, Lord, that we would respond rightly. So, Lord, be with each one who raised their hand their heart towards you this morning, Lord, that you would work in and through them, Lord, in all of our midst, Lord, that we would be strong and healthy in our walk with you. Lord, may daily we re-surrender and recommit our life to following you, Lord, knowing that it's not always going to be easy. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We have the, the power, according to Acts 1.8, that's been given to us. And according to Second Timothy, we've not been given the spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. Lord God, you've given us the tools that we need to stand firm and strong for you. May we do it. And so, Lord, we thank you for how you work in our hearts and our lives. Lord, continue to do so long beyond this hour. And we'll praise you for it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.